Welcome to the Daily Dive Weekend Edition. I'm Oscar Ramirez, and every week, my producer Miranda and I explore the top stories making waves in the news, and some that are just plain interesting. We connect you with the journalists and people who know the story, and bring you news without the noise, so you can make an informed decision. You can catch a new episode of The Daily Dive every Monday through Friday, and it's ready when you wake up. On the weekend edition, we will be bringing you some of the best stories from the week. One of the saddest stories of the week was the passing of comic book legend Stan Lee. He was the man behind Marvel Comics and had a, a great deal of influence in the Marvel movies, really making millions of dollars for Hollywood. One of the key things that Stan Lee really brought to comics at the time was introducing human flaws into these superheroes. They weren't these perfect people anymore. They were normal people. They were things that people could get attached to. And as a reader, you fell in love with these characters because you saw a lot of yourselves in them. One of the characters that brought him the most success was Spider-Man. Just personally is one of my favorite characters of all time. I like the powers. I think it'd be cool to crawl on the walls and have superhuman strength. He was very much a normal guy, a normal kid. And I loved that. I loved all those things that Stan Lee brought to the comics. So to talk about how Stan Lee impacted popular culture, what he meant to the comic book industry, what he meant to Hollywood and the movies and all the superhero movies we see, we spoke to Tawala Sharp. He's the co-host of the Nerd-O-Rama podcast on iHeartRadio. We started off by talking about how Stan Lee got his start in the comic book world. Stan Lee, he kind of grew up with that creative vibe, that creative juice that flows through everyone who loves comic books. He is the quintessential nerd. You know, he was brought up in New York, went to school in the Bronx is why you have a lot of New York influences right. throughout the Marvel Universe and a lot of his characters. By all accounts, Stan Lee pretty much was Peter Parker growing up. He got his start in comic books as an assistant, basically filling ink jars, making sure artists had paperwork. It was through his perseverance and just this creative gunning that took him from timely comics and, and writing for like Astonishing Comics when back in the day everything was really weird and, and you had monsters and aliens. And, you know, he got his first shot doing a Captain America comic book, right. which kind of said like, OK, I'm officially here. This is before the launching of Marvel, which a lot of people say that he started Marvel. No, Marvel was already a comic book company. And when he was able to ascend to the throne as writer and editor in chief, he came in with a vision to take comic books to a whole other level beyond just the regular superhero tropes. He said, you know what? I want to tell different stories. I want to tell stories about everyday people that everyone can relate to, right. beginning with the Fantastic Four. Yeah. Of the first group of heroes that were publicly known, who had ever done something like that? Who had ever said, you know who we are, you see our faces? The way he got started, he almost wanted to quit writing comics. He was bored with doing it. And that time came for him to step up and his wife convinced him, hey, this is your chance to tell superhero stories the way you want to. Yeah. And he took that to heart. And then that's when he poured himself into, it. as you said, Fantastic Four was that first thing with characters that have their flaws. He was the first one to really make that happen. Rivals with DC. They had Batman and Superman and Wonder Woman. They were always kind of these perfect people almost. He introduced the whole slew of characters that had personal problems that were not only the superheroes, but they had their personal human life, as you said, with 
Spider-Man when he hit it really big right. was the young kid who was bullied by the football star, had trouble with girls, had dandruff and things like that, they always said. He was a geek. He was a geek. Everyone can relate to the guy who's being bullied, but at the same time, when you see that this guy is as powerful as he is, and he is just burdened by this moral code of with great power comes great responsibility. I'm going to put on this mask and I'm going to always do the right thing when really you didn't have to. That right there, those type of character stories, like I'm not good just for the sake of being good. There are times where Spider-Man thought oftentimes like, well, maybe I should be making money off of this. That's a deep, deep way to go at a time when no one else is doing it. He had a hand in helping with all of these movies and really just transforming popular culture Talk a little bit about that, about the lasting impact that he's going to have on everybody that takes in any of this media. The word indelible is all you can use to describe the impact that Stan Lee had on comic book culture forevermore. The notion that each and every one of his films that are based on his characters have hit within the billion dollar mark. Right. Characters that you've never heard of before, a character like Black Panther that for many were introduced to him through the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Yes, those of us who are hardcore comic book characters, we know him. But when you take an unknown character like that and it crosses a billion dollars on its own, and that's just one film within a summer of films that have hit that mark. When you look at the fact that Stan Lee's character, Spider-Man, alone is the most known superhero in the world, that alone lets you know that his mark and the impact that he made on comic book culture is forevermore. And then we also hear very late in his life really sad stories about claims of elder abuse. Like I said, he had been sick, but he was still going to all of the comic cons and other conventions. You said you even saw him. At the Doctor Strange premiere, we noticed that he seemed very, very off. And we noticed an individual that was later identified as the person who had been taking advantage of him, guiding him around. But it seemed like he was on autopilot, which lots of times he was. I mean, you've got a guy who at one point was sitting in a room signing a thousand autographs every hour to the point where he oftentimes didn't know what day it was because he had been held up in his house signing memorabilia. Fortunately, before his passing, everything was cleared up and he was in a much better space where he was just able to live his life. But it saddens those of us who were just so in love with his works and, and, and they brought us so much joy throughout our lives that someone like that could be taken advantage of. He will be missed. I'm sure people are going to be talking about him forever, really. These movies and these comic books have just impacted everybody. Tawala Sharp, co-host of the Nerdorama podcast. You can hear it on iHeartRadio. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. One of the big stories that's been going on for more than a week now are all the wildfires throughout California. There was one major fire in the northern part of the state, two other fires in the southern part of the state. The one that really has taken a a huge toll is the one up north called the Camp Fire. They really took out a whole town called Paradise. The updated numbers right now, there's about 56 people who are confirmed dead. There's still over 100 people missing. And these numbers are all very much subject to changes. As we get updates every day, what we learned about Paradise was that authorities used only limited evacuation alerts to warn people of getting out of the town. Uh, They didn't want to cause gridlock in the few roads that they could get people out of there, and they chose to do things in stages. It backfired on them. The fire moved faster than anybody else could. And it overtook the towns. And then also uh, what the next step is, uh, tracking down how the fire started. 
So my producer Miranda joined me for more information on this. Yeah, they're searching through abandoned homes that are still standing, rubble that's available to them, as well as cars that maybe were pulled over to the side of the road, just to try to search through to find anything living, human or pets, animals, that kind of thing. There's more than 460 people, along with 22 dogs involved in the recovery efforts. And since they started collecting names of the missing people, investigators have found more than 200 people safe. Yeah, that's great news. Because part of the problem is they don't know who's missing unless they're reported. It's gotten to the point where people have started to submit DNA so that they can possibly track people or, you know, if they find somebody that's dead to try to get some type of positive identification. And then to add insult to injury, at one of these evacuation centers, it was at a neighborhood church, a norovirus outbreak was confirmed where there's about 200 evacuees there. Don't know the exact number of how many people got ill, but they sequestered them so that not every, you know, so that everything wouldn't be spreading. Staff members at that shelter are cleaning handles, countertops, anywhere where the virus might be. I mean, that's just the the worst right there. They say that the outbreaks like this are not uncommon because of the small spaces that everybody's living in. And other places, residents are building their own resource centers for displaced. There's a group of people who are living, I guess in a Walmart parking lot in Chico and they buy stuff from the store and hand out food and stuff out there. There's an area for pets where they have dog beds and pet food. And then there's also a Burger King parking lot where people have been meeting to reunite with lost family members and find a safe place to sleep where there's also food. Just to provide some numbers for how this thing has been progressing, we were talking about the campfire. Over 140,000 acres have burned. They say it's about 40% contained right now, but that could also change. That's what we were talking about. 56 people died there. Mm -hmm. So far, the Hill Fire is almost fully contained. That one had about 4,500 acres burned. And the Woolsey Fire that was in L.A. and Ventura counties, just about 100,000 acres burned, about 57% containment. And as I said, these numbers change Every day. But one of the things that came to light that was very interesting was the town of Paradise was affected. Most of the deaths occurred there. The thing that came up was how they were monitoring and how they were implementing the evacuation orders. A lot of times they have uh, sent out phone calls and text messages and things like that. And it just seemed to be a mess from the beginning. In 2008, Paradise, California, suffered a pretty major wildfire. And at the time, they issued mass evacuations. They just told everybody to leave at the same time. And what they found was that everybody left at the exact same time and the roads were clogged and it was very difficult for people to escape safely. So what they wanted to do this time was evacuate people in stages and try to get everyone on the east side of town where the fire was started out first and then move in phases so that everybody would be able to evacuate safely. The problem with that was the fire was moving way too fast. It took hours before people found out. And most people didn't find out from like you would expect a text message or a phone call. They found out from cops driving up and down the streets on their loudspeaker saying, get out now. And by that time it was way too late. And, you know, paradise sits on a hilltop. There's canyons all around it. They only have four narrow winding roads to be able to get out of there. So that was the thought process. We tell everybody to go. It's just going to be gridlock all over again. Let's do it in stages. But the fire was moving so fast, there was absolutely no hope for those people to get out of there. They use a phone system called Code Red, and they even said that in the town of Paradise, they're lucky if 25 to 30 percent of phone lines are in that system. Right. So, like you said, Miranda, is just a lot of people heard that evacuation orders were coming first from cops, other people calling them, Mm -hmm. you know, not, not from any official source. 
And then you get all those people that you know, don't want to evacuate and everything. So, Or they're asleep when yeah. the alerts come in. Paradise has a very high population of elderly people who, A, can't move quickly, B, don't have access to technology like cell phones and Facebook. So they've got landlines. Well, didn't a part of their phone system go down because they weren't able to reach these people on landlines? Yeah, it's the worst wildfire in California history. Most of the people that pass were found in their homes or trying to flee in their cars or just outside seeking shelter. It is pretty crazy. And and then the other next big step is investigators from Cal Fire. Their job is to find out how the fire started. They always start with thinking that people started the fire, right. whether by accident, it could be on purpose, but that's where they start thinking that somebody did something to spark a fire. And that's where the investigation is going to go right now. They say something as tiny as a pebble can be a very important clue because they look at things like what side was it blackened on by the heat? What's the condition of the soil below where the pebble is? Are there flames that burn from left to right or right to left? They can tell all of that just by looking at a burned tree. They know. And a lot of people are looking towards Pacific Gas and Electric, which is the largest utility company up there. One of the stats said that Cal Fire said that of the 21 major fires last fall in Northern California, 17, at least 17 were caused by power lines, poles, other equipment owned by Pacific Gas and Electric. And once they figure that out, Oscar, then they can start seeking compensation for firefighting costs. In the case of the campfire, it's going to be astronomical, whoever foots the bill, because there's more than 5,600 firefighters still on the lines as of Wednesday with 23 helicopters and 630 engines out on the road. Yeah. So the news still not good up there. Uh, the fires are do seem to be getting under control, but uh, this is the next step is surveying all the devastation, tracking down those final missing people, seeing what the final death toll will be and finding where the origin of the fire is. Thank you, Miranda. Thanks, Oscar. The California wildfires are also a story about the weather and the changing weather, climate change, and this new normal that California is experiencing, which is the year-round fire season. It's no longer relegated to just a few months. Fires can break out at any moment, and because of things like climate change and the drought that California has been experiencing for a long time now, the fuel for the fires are always there. So to talk a little bit more about the science of fires, we spoke to Andrew Friedman. He's a science editor for Axios. He's also an extreme weather expert. And we started talking about how these trends are changing in California. My thoughts are with the firefighters and with everybody affected there. There's pretty much not a person in California who isn't, be it air quality issues or otherwise. Right. The long-term trends are really clear and have been growing more stark recently, which is that basically you have several trends acting in one direction to heighten wildfire risk in California. You have climate change, which makes for hotter, drier summers. You have climate change, which one researcher called it the shoulders of the dry season. You could also think of it as the tails of the dry season. So fall gets a little bit longer and a little bit warmer. Spring starts a little bit earlier and is a little bit warmer. And if if you make those seasons in particular a little bit drier, a little bit warmer, that's when, particularly in the fall, you get into Santa Ana wind season. So you don't want to dry that season out and you do not want to prolong it. And that's what's happening. So the Santa Ana wind events are primarily natural in origin in terms of a weather event, but they are taking place in a broader context 
of us building a lot more in what's known as the wildland urban interface, which is where towns come up against areas that do burn regularly. People want to build in those areas because they want to be around nature. There is an increase of population all the time, so you, you have to keep expanding. Building into the wilderness and things like that, people love it. People want to live near there. And then, yeah, these things happen and, and it could become a very dangerous situation. What's been especially scary that we hadn't seen before, that's really a new phenomenon in California, especially new and repetitive, is these uncontrollable fires that very quickly become urban fires. Yeah. So the Paradise Fire was so frightening to watch in terms of watching that Twitter hashtag of the campfire on Thursday, uh, late Thursday Eastern time was horrific. You got a sense of what people were going through there and how quickly they had to get out. You know that the death toll is very likely increasing there. Uh, It's already Mm -hmm. tied for the deadliest wildfire in state history. It's already the most damaging in state history. And that happens when you combine rapid spreading wind-driven fires with a community that's located there. There are real legitimate questions, both for economic reasons and for wildfire risk reasons. And we don't know if that community will build back or build back in a different way. Just like on the East Coast, they're questioning whether towns in Florida that were hit by uh, the last Hurricane Michael are going to build back. There's all sorts of questions that we really need to be asking as we recognize that the wildfire risk is elevated so much that this is the new normal. It's We're not going back to a six-month fire season right. in California, and we're not going back to less people living in the state. So yeah. how do you accommodate more people with more fire? And part of that is to be smart about where you're building and be better about practicing drills of getting people out of harm's way very quickly. There's a lot right. of questions about why cell phone alerts didn't go out. Different communities are prepared in different ways. Just speaking to the extreme weather of these things, you mentioned in your article, too, about the car fire that happened over the summer. These fire tornadoes form and, and, you know, just how extreme these things get is so crazy that people can't handle it sometimes. It's not just people. Like, it's not uh, just that ordinary people can't handle it. The most seasoned firefighters are telling reporters and telling um, citizens, hey, we cannot attack this fire. We cannot keep it at bay. The best we can do, and this was happening occasionally, there were fire trucks alongside that road trying to keep the flames far enough away from cars that were inching away Mm -hmm. in traffic from paradise. And there were, you know, similar tactics being deployed in Malibu when that fire was spreading so quickly that it crossed the PCH. This extreme fire behavior and the interaction with very highly populated areas, that's something we haven't seen so much before. You've said it, and the governor of California, Jerry Brown, said it, and it's the unfortunate thing, and it's a thing that all Californians need to watch out for. And, you know, in other parts of the world as well, this is becoming the new normal, and we need to adjust and adjust to it and find out ways to help mitigate some of these things. Andrew Friedman, science editor for Axios, extreme weather expert. Thank you for joining us again. Thanks for having me. Take care, guys. Don't forget to join us on social media at Daily Dive Pod on Twitter and Daily Dive Podcast on Facebook. Leave us a comment, give us a rating, and tell us the stories that you're interested in. Follow us on iHeartRadio and wherever you get your podcasts. 
I'm Oscar Ramirez, and this is the Daily Dive Weekend Edition.